We're going to take a journey through the book of Colossians. And we're going to look specifically at something called dualism. Dualism is not a good thing. And so we'll talk about that today. Opposing dualism. We are to resist the sinful temptation to divide our lives into dual parts or two parts. One part for ourselves and one part for God. That's called a dichotomy where you have two things that are supposedly equal but opposed to one another. Any dichotomy separating life into sacred and secular divisions is false, and it's not found in the Scripture. That type of dualistic worldview opposes God as the Creator and the Lord over all things. Because every area, all areas of our life are created, sustained, and governed by God. And it is in that context that we'll take a journey through the book of Colossians to look at, to understand, to reaffirm this truth that in Christ all things are held together. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from the first chapter of Colossians. I'm going to read uh, the first 20 verses as a broad overview of what we will be talking about. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the world, of the truth, I'm sorry, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also... Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for this amazing news. That Christ is preeminent in all things, the creator of heaven and earth, and that all things consist. Indeed, all things are held together in him. And it is by Christ, by the blood he shed, that we are redeemed and our sins are forgiven. And it is in Christ we are to trust, and it is in Christ that we live and move and have our being. Indeed, Christ himself dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And our lives are to be the expression, the manifestation of that life to the glory of God. We thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Opposing dualism. Paul wrote this letter to this church, the, the believers called the Colossians because they lived in a city called Colossae. It was not an important city. It was much like Taylor in many ways, just a, a city out from the big metro areas. But it was a city in which it's believed a papyrus a disciple of Paul planted a church. And Paul is in prison. And Paul is writing a letter to the Colossians around 60 AD. And in his introduction includes a statement in verse 5 and 6 that we should not overlook. Paul makes a statement indicating the gospel has gone to and is bringing forth fruit in all the world. Listen to verse Six, the end of five, Paul writes, The gospel which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. So Paul states that the gospel which has come to you, as it has also come to all the world, this is 60 AD, just a little over three decades perhaps, since Jesus was crucified, certainly three decades 
since the time Jesus began his earthly ministry and was born. And by three decades in, Paul writes and says, the gospel has gone to the world. And it is bearing fruit in all the world, just as it has come to you and is bearing fruit among you. This is consistent with the scripture's teaching that the gospel is the power of God to save and to transform men's hearts and the very world they live in. So you do understand that the gospel is to transform our hearts, but in transforming our hearts, the gospel is to also transform the world we live in. Jesus described the way that would happen by calling us salt and light. So if you walk into a room that's dark and you flip the light switch and the lights come on, what happens to the darkness? It's gone. Dispelled by the light. When Jesus said that we as his disciples are to be salt and light, Luke adds a bit of detail to that when he says, if the salt has lost its savor, its flavor, its saltiness, it's not even fit to be put on the dunghill. And salt was put on a dunghill to turn dung into something that would be useful fertilizer. And Luke says, if the salt loses its savor, its flavor, it's not even fit to put on the dunghill. So light must come in contact with darkness in order to dispel it, and salt must come in contact with the ground or whatever substance it's going to be put on in order to either preserve it or turn it into something that is useful. This is where we get our word salary. Salt was used as payment. Salary comes from the word salt because that's how they used to pay people because salt was more valuable than gold. Because you can't eat gold. But if you put salt on your meat, you can preserve it, and you'll have it to eat for a long time. We are called salt and light, and we are to be an agent in this earth, in this world, that brings about change and transformation for the glory of God. This is what the gospel does. The fruit of the gospel is the transformation of men's hearts and the world they live in. This transformation applies to every area of man's life and all of God's creation. Transformation comes through the gospel. So in verses 9 through 14, Paul describes his prayer for the church. He does not cease to pray for them and petition God on their behalf. This is what Paul says in talking about his ceaseless prayer on behalf of the church. And this ceaseless prayer and petition for men's hearts and lives to be transformed, to make manifest the life of Christ. This is the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church. Paul specifically prays for the church these things. In verse 9, he prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, Paul is writing to the Colossians in 60 AD, but I promise you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
Paul is writing for us today in 2022 A.D. The letter wasn't written to you, but the letter was absolutely written for you. And the prayers that Paul prayed for the church at at Colossae, for the Colossians, is the same prayer he prayed for all the believers that he had discipled, that he had had planted churches and, and, and traveled around the known world at that time. This was Paul's prayer for the church. Not just the church during his lifetime, but Paul knew very well that when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't just pray for the disciples that were with him in the garden that night. Jesus, in fact, prayed for all of those who would believe at their word. That means us. Jesus, on that night before he was crucified, prayed for all believers throughout all time and space. That means Jesus prayed for you and Jesus prayed for me. And don't think that Jesus just prayed some general prayer and you were some nameless, faceless person to Jesus. Yes, you are part of his church innumerable throughout the ages. But I promise when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you. His blood was spilt for you so that you could be redeemed and your sins could be forgiven. And Paul, in praying for the church here, the Colossians, is praying for us as well. And that prayer is that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all understanding and spiritual, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In verse 10, he prays that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The gospel is not stagnant. Your faith is not stagnant. Don't live a stagnant life. Don't let your faith be stagnant. It is to be ever producing fruit. It is to be ever increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, he prays that you may be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. You notice that it's not according to our power because in fact, we have no power in and of ourselves. And whatever power we may have or we may think we have, it is certainly not glorious. That you may be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Those are painful words. Because I will confess to you that I am very often not patient and long-suffering with joy whether I'm trying to get a, a rod and reel untangled, or whether I'm trying to fix something that's broken, or whether I'm just tired of the circumstances and the situations that seem to creep in and try to invade our lives all the time. But God says, stop and realize that it's not your strength, it's not your ability, 
In fact, God allows us to come to those places so that we will realize our weakness, so that we will realize our lack of power, so that we will realize that it is only upon Him that we can rely, that you may be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Notice he joins strength and joy together in his prayer. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Our joy and our strength in Christ is not determined by our circumstances in the world. Some days we feel strong. Some days we don't. Some days we feel like we can go out and conquer the world. Other days we feel like the world has conquered us. That is not what determines whether we're weak or whether we're strong. It is Christ. It is His strength. It is His glorious power that is our patience and our long-suffering, indeed our joy, not our circumstances. In verse 12, he prays that we be giving thanks to the Father. Listen who has qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. I don't want you to, I don't want you just to pass over that. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Your giving thanks is the fruit of your lips continually offering up to Him the sacrifice of praise. You were once darkness, but now you offer up your thanks to him for qualifying you to be a partaker in the light. He alone may qualify you. There is no way for you to qualify yourself. There is no work that qualifies you. There is no merit to be earned that qualifies you. It is only by his grace he alone qualifies you to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And knowing it is God who qualifies you, he has delivered you from the power of darkness and conveyed you into the kingdom of the son of his love. He qualified you. He delivered you from the power of darkness. He conveyed you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Amen. It's like Scotty being beamed up. Some of you don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's how old I am. But that's what God did. He conveyed us out of darkness into His light. Out of death into life. Out of the kingdom of darkness and into the glorious kingdom of His Son, the Son of His love. And in His Son, that is in Christ, you have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And there is redemption, and there is forgiveness in no other place. There is no other way to be forgiven. Only by the blood of Christ can your sins be taken away. No amount of sorrow, no amount of suffering, no amount of tears can wash away your sin. You have redemption through his blood. 
And it is only by his grace that the fount of his blood ever flows to take away your sins. And it never, ever runs dry. Then in verse 15, Paul makes a transition and he begins to describe to us who Christ is. And he begins verse 15 with these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. That word image is where we get our word icon from. Firstborn doesn't mean chronology. He's not chronologically the firstborn because Jesus was not created. That word firstborn speaks of preeminence. It means that he is preeminent over all things. There is nothing that transcends his name, his power, his position. His, Paul writes in Philippians, his is the name above all names. And at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dualism stands in opposition to God's created order. The verse, these verses, the verses we read earlier, from verse 15 to the end uh, there to, chap, to verse 20, these verses convey a truth that opposes dualism at its core. If all things, and you notice as we read that earlier, how many times Paul uses that phrase, all things. Things. He created all things. All things are held together in him. He, all things. He uses that on purpose because he wants us to understand that there is no area of creation. There is no area of our life. There is nothing that is outside his realm, outside his rule. We cannot create spheres that we choose to live in. I'm going to live in the my God sphere on Sunday when I go to church. But come Monday, I'm going to step back into my worldly sphere, my secular sphere, and that's where I'm going to live my life until I decide otherwise. No, it doesn't work that way. If all things are truly held together in Him, then we cannot have anything that is not. Faith is to be integrated into every aspect of life and thought. There is to be no part of our life we live apart from faith in the Son of God. Dualism is fundamentally opposed to true Christianity. Now, there's lots of pseudo-Christianity out there. There's lots of Christianity in name only. But I'm talking about true believers, people who truly follow Christ, if you're living a true Christianity, then you cannot live in dual spheres, moving back and forth from, from them. Dualism is fundamentally opposed to that. It creates a secular, sacred dichotomy in God's creation, and that, that can't be. The famous Puritan John Cotton said this, A true believing Christian lives in his vocation by his faith, not only my spiritual life, but even my civil life in this world. And all the life I live is by the faith of the Son of God. He exempts no life 
from the agency of his faith. He exempts no life from the agency of his faith. Or we could say it like this. He exempts no area of life from the agency of his faith. This statement epitomizes the rejection of the sacred-secular dichotomy. There is no area of your life that is not governed by the faith of the Son of God. Your faith is to inform all you do. And there is no scriptural basis for dividing your life or the world into a sacred or secular sphere. This dualistic worldview opposes God as creator and Lord of all things. Why? Because all areas of life are created, sustained, and governed by Him. In Him, all things consist. In Him, all things are held together. This type of dichotomy, if not multiplied, is greatly enhanced in our culture today. Social media, our our. our Devices, everything, they're wonderful gifts that can do amazing things for our lives and make our lives convenient and be blessings, but it's a dual-edged sword because it also makes sinning much easier. It also makes trusting in ourselves or in technology or in knowledge of, of, of other things, it, it, it tempts us to rely less on God. But that's true with everything. I mean, everything in our world, we can do that with anything, not just phones, smartphones, or social media. Here's an example. There's a, there's a lot of talk today about teenagers being more depressed than ever. And depressed teenagers, if you don't realize this, can turn into depressed adults. It doesn't mean they will. Depression is most often a thing that comes and goes. Uh, most people will experience depression in their, sometime in their life. For most people, it'll come and it'll go. But that's not true for everyone. And so there's a lot of research being done right now because they've noticed that teenagers are more depressed than ever. And research, research shows a definite link between depression and smartphone ownership. So in 2012, there was a significant spike in the rate of depression among teenagers. And it just so happens that 2012 was also the first time in history that over 50% of the population owned a smartphone. The practice of dividing our lives into separate spheres is ingrained in our culture, if you haven't noticed that. We silo, we separate, we compartmentalize lots of areas of our life. And it's not that we can't have different compartments. I mean, we do that when we organize our pantries or our offices. It's not that. It's that we realize that however we organize our life, that doesn't mean that we live outside in a different sphere, under a different set of rules, under a different truth. So I don't live one day under one set of rules and one set of truths, and then 
on Sunday, I live under another one. That's what I'm talking about. That's wrong. That's sinful. Unfortunately, this practice of separating our lives into these spheres is ingrained in too much of the church, not just the culture. The easy access and the proliferation of social media with our new ever-present devices does not help because now we're able to create our own alternate realities, whether that's virtually or just in our imagination at, at any time. I mean, you can be sitting and having a conversation with someone, pick up your phone and, and go somewhere virtually and completely zone out of everything that's happening around you and you can be consumed in that virtual world that you just entered into. And you can find your fulfillment, you can find your happiness, you can find all of those things that you want for your life, you can attempt to find those things in that virtual world and it may work for a while, but it won't sustain you. Thus, what happens? I go for more and more and more, and I'm disappointed more and more and more. And you know what happens when we get disappointed so frequently, so much? It becomes depressing. This is why people suffer from depression in this way very often. Today, it's a habit for people to compare themselves to others. The Bible tells us not to do that. It's unwise. And there's a reason why. When we compare ourselves to others, we, we measure ourselves against someone or we measure them against us. So think about this. With every like or every follow, we expose ourselves to this temptation. This causes us to covet and envy or lust after things or lifestyles or appearances that are not a reality for us. I wish I had muscles like that guy. Well, go to the gym and you might get them. But you can't sit there and look at your phone and wish all day you had muscles like that and they get depressed because you don't. But do you know... I'm being facetious, but that's exactly what people do. Or little girls look at movie stars, actresses, and say, I wish I was that beautiful. Then they look in the mirror and they say, but I'm not. And they look back at their phone, but I wish I was, but I'm not. And what this is doing is causing us to lust after things, to desire things that are not a reality for us. Not just because they're out of our reach, but here's the most important part. Most importantly, because this is not who God created us to be or to become. Amen. There's a reason why Jesus is our icon, our image. When, I, when his life is planted in us, it is his life that is to be seen through us. In other words, we are to become like Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul writes in Romans that the Holy Spirit is doing, conforming us to the image of the Son. But we get lost in these other realities, live in these other spheres, and we decide we want to be like the latest, greatest movie star or the latest, greatest whatever. But in reality, the mirror that we should be looking into is the Word of God. And that mirror 
is not only changing us and transforming us, it is helping us understand how we are or are not becoming more like Jesus. God made you fundamentally who you are. I am bald. Can't do anything about it. I could get hair implants. I could use Rogaine, I guess. I don't know. Maybe some fuzz would grow. But you know what? I just need to be okay with this beautiful bald head, and I am. I'm okay with it. I'm never going to be as tall as Jesse. It's just a fact. I can wear platform shoes and lengthen my jeans, but I'm never going to be as tall as him. Even if I can fake it, it'll never be a reality. And that's okay. Are you okay with who God has made you? Do you know a lot of people aren't? Because they're trying to be someone else or something else that God did not fundamentally make them to be. God gives the desire to improve your life, yes, but not to fundamentally change who and what you are. Your life is a gift to be cherished and used up for the glory of God. Dualism opposes this. Dualism says, well, I am fundamentally this, but I'm going I'm to live in this other reality as much as I can and pretend to be someone or something else and live under a different set of rules. I know I can't really. Well, actually, today people don't really know they can't really. Today people don't really know. Some people don't know they can't really be a boy or a girl because they were born the opposite sex. Some people don't know that because the world is teaching them that you can just choose to be what you want and that's what you are. That is dualism. That is opposed to everything God is in the world that he has created. False realities make it more difficult to be content. Easy access to different realities, real or virtual, hinder our ability to learn to be content. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, wrote about the blessedness of learning contentment in whatever state or condition we may find ourselves. To do that, we must press into Jesus by faith. Discontentment is a temptation we all face. When we begin to feel discontent, we need to press into Jesus. Amen. The false realities many people create are in direct opposition to, the, to faith in God. The world God created is real. This is the real world that God created. The life he created and gifted to each person is real and precious. Life is to be valued and lived in faith. Sin is the root of discontent that causes us to seek alternate realities or even the very redefinition of God's created order in yourself or in others. God commands we live every area of our life by faith in Christ. It is Christ, not the metaverse, who is upholding all things by his power. The scripture does not teach us that in him some things consist, but in him all things consist. In Christ, all things are held together. Consider the truth that Paul conveys about Christ, who is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation. By him... 
all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is, that is, Christ is before all things. In Christ, all things consist. In him, all things are literally held together. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Do you see the theme that Paul is running with here? For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, by Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. I will say it again. In Christ all things are held together. By him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. The Lord is the creator. His word is the standard by which all things are objectively judged. We live in a very subjective world today. In fact, the world is teaching our children from the earliest of ages that there is no objective truth, that everything is subjective, that you can believe what you want, be what you want, choose the gender you want, and it doesn't matter what your biology says. It certainly doesn't matter what the Bible says because God is just a big myth. And if you don't believe that's happening, I would encourage you to wake up and look around and see the state of our nation and the state of our world. And we did not get here by accident. It was purposeful and it was planned. And it happened exactly the way I'm talking, what I'm talking about today. Man in his sin decided that he would not subject himself to God and God's word, that he would be his own God and he would make his own rules, he would make his own truth. And when he didn't like that truth anymore, he would just change it. There are now no absolutes according to the world. Therefore, there is no other standard. If God is the creator, if the word is the standard by which all things are objectively judged, there is no other standard. There is no other interest, no other sphere that can be placed above God or above his word. No one and no thing can be above God to judge him because he is the judge. He is above all things. Dualism allows other standards and other interests to stand above God and His Word simply by existing in a separate sphere. This is sin and it cannot be sustained. By separating life into two parts, a sacred and a secular, one part for ourselves and another part for God, the toleration of sin becomes a practical virtue. And this is what we're seeing now. Sin is counted a virtue. Good is called evil, and evil is called good. And anyone who speaks in an objective way, who believes in some absolute objective truth, 
There is no tolerance for that type of person because they are intolerant. Intolerant of sin. We're seeing this happen before our very eyes today, inside and outside the church. The modern virtue of tolerating sin has resulted in a renewed intolerance toward Christianity. R.J. Rush Dooney pointed this out in an article he wrote talking about the into that to intolerance is inescapable. Let me quote Rush Dooney here. He writes, intolerance is inescapable. If we are Christians and abide by Scripture, we will be intolerant towards murder, theft, adultery, false witness, and other offenses against God's order. They will be to us a violation of our freedom and order under God and an oppression of godly men. If, on the other hand, we are sinners and lawbreakers by nature, and that is our nature until God gives us a new one, we will be intolerant of God and of God's people, intolerant of godly laws and restraints precisely because we tolerate and love sin. Our Lord stated the issue clearly. No man can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other, Matthew 6.24. It is necessary for us to love God in His Word, and if we are regenerate, it is our nature to do so. This means that we are therefore, that we therefore hate sin, and we regard it as an offense against God and man, and an intolerable violation of godly order, which must be eliminated. And how are we going to eliminate sin? Well, we're going to do it by preaching the gospel. We're going to do it by living the gospel. We're going to do it by putting ourselves under the objective standard of God's truth and then living in that truth and pointing out to others that God brings to our life to help them understand that they too must come under that truth, under that objective standard. And they too must come to a place where they love righteousness to the point that they will no longer tolerate sin. Intolerance. Intolerance is just inescapable. Dualism leads to moral relativism and acceptance of sin. So relativism is in the moral and social order is what dualism leads to. There's an objective standard of right and wrong established by God's word. That means there is a truth that is absolute. It's comical to watch men on the street interviews of people. Do you believe in absolute truth? Absolutely not. Are you absolutely sure about that? I mean, people say things and they don't even think about what they're saying. People, college students today will tell you, well, we really don't know whether we're, whether we're in the matrix or not. This could be real or it could just all be make-believe. People are living their lives. Our future leaders, that's their belief. That's what they believe. They entertain those irrational thoughts because they refuse to allow themselves to be brought under an objective truth and an objective standard. There are absolute standards of what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is sinful. 
And God has determined and defined those standards by his word. Dualism leads to a relativism that rejects the concept of absolute truth. Truth, reality, sexuality, and gender, and all other things become relative to the reality each person may create in their own mind and the subjective standards that they choose to live by. Now there is no... Now, there is no absolute truth in the minds of a lot of people. No God above. This is not new. The, John Lennon sang about it and, and, and made millions of dollars off of it. Imagine there's no heaven. No heaven above. No God above who has set an objective standard for us to live by. Now, there is each person creating their own truth it is man above all who is now setting his own subjective standard for all to live by. And the fallacy is easy to spot if we have eyes to see. When will one man's subjective standard violate another's? Because it will happen sooner or later. And what will happen is when that violation takes place, then the standard will have to be adjusted. And as long as it is adjusted in the right direction, we can agree to get along and maybe even agree to disagree. But God forbid if the standard is adjusted in the wrong direction, we cannot and we will not tolerate that. And that is exactly what's happening in our culture today. Any subjective standard adjusted in any direction to maintain its subjectiveness is okay with man, but it is absolutely wrong according to God and his objective standard. God has no subjective standards. He is the standard, and in him and in his word, he has set the absolute standard of truth for us in the image that he has given to us made known to us in Jesus Christ. In case we have forgotten, the Lord is the absolute ruler, the Lord and King ruling over all of His created order. Jesus is Lord and He is reigning supreme over all. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and so should we, at their vain attempts to overthrow God. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, talk about Christ being raised and seated above all things, and that all things have been placed under his feet. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you hear that? He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know who the church is? You are the church if you are in Christ. 
the church. That is you. That is me. We are members of his body. We are the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ fills all in all. And that is good news. And Christ fills all in all so completely, there is no room for any other sphere to exist. The only sphere that exists in reality is the one he created, not the ones we create. And for Christians, for those who trust the gospel, for those who see with eyes wide open what's happening, that should be good news and that should give us hope and that should give us reason to rejoice and empower us to go out and to make known his truth even when the world does not want to hear it. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare ourselves to come to the table. Let's stand. Our final thought, it is our charge always to the Word, to go to the Word, to wash your mind with this truth so that you are not tempted to fall for the lie. Life is real. Live in this real world that God created. Live with both feet firmly planted and both eyes and both ears wide open. Be established in the truth. See the truth. Hear the truth. And go and live the truth. Do it boldly. Do it loudly. Do it brightly for all the world to see and hear and know that Jesus is the only way, the only hope. Isaiah 8.20, Isaiah writes, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The darkness is real, but the light always overcomes the darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And our charge, the Lord's command, is to walk as children of light. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you.